justiciado revolucionariamente el dictador Fulgencio Batista. En su propia medida de palacio presidencial, el pueblo de Cuba ha ido a ajustarles cuenta. Welcome back to the Orb of Greatness podcast, episode 1.16, Back in the Game. The opening soundbite comes from a radio reloge broadcast on March 13, 1957. The voice you heard was that of Jose Antonio Echeverria, live from the studio in Havana, Cuba. The excerpt was part of a 181-second speech that was nicknamed Three Minutes of Truth. A translated portion of the speech reads as follows. People of Cuba, the dictator Fajencio Batista has been finally brought to justice. The echoes of the gunshots that ended the bloody tyrant's life are still reverberating in the presidential palace. Echeverria was the founder and leader of the Directorio Revolucionario Estudiantil, or DRE. The DRE was a militant wing of the Federación Estudiantil Universitaria, founded in 1954 to violently oppose Fajencio Batista. We very briefly introduced Echeverria and the Revolutionary Directory back in episode 1.12 in reference to the Carta de Mexico agreement that promised the Directorio and the 26th of July movement would acknowledge one another's efforts to overthrow Batista and advise each other on the steps each were taking for their mutual goal, a Cuba free of Batista's tyranny. The DRE was founded to continue the noble tradition of University of Havana students resisting government corruption. The Federación Estudianto Universitaria, or FEU, had famously been founded in 1924 by Julio Antonio Mella to fight against the oppression of Cuban President Gerardo Machado. The FEU had initiated the general strike of 1933 and participated in the overthrow of Machado's government. As we discussed previously, the overthrow of Machado also led to the rise of Fajencio Batista and a number of short-lived puppet presidents until Batista became president and installed a new constitution in 1940. The decade between the founding of the FEU in 1924 and the fall of Machado in 1933 saw a transformation in the minds of the University of Fauna students in regards to their role in the country. Their role was to be the heart and soul of the country, the conscience that would speak out and guide the country away from incompetence, corruption, and the servility of their governments. The student generation of 1930, as these original student protesters were known, were the inspiration for the new form of student protesters who harried the Batista government throughout the 1950s. Fidel Castro classified himself as politically illiterate when he entered the University of Havana to study law. It was the attitude and social consciousness of the University of Havana that inspired Fidel Castro to take up arms against the Cuban government and bring out his leftist anti-imperialistic political stance. Jose Antonio Echeverria and students like him continued the resistance after Castro left campus. The FEU and DR under Echeverria were known to employ violent protests against the government. It has been theorized that these student organizations actually wanted the government and police to forcefully put down these protests in order to expose the brutality of the government. If a fatality occurred, that student could be used as a martyr and face for the movement of change and resistance. The protests only continued to grow more violent and insistent. It was in this atmosphere that Echeverria traveled to Mexico in order to meet with Fidel and sign the Carta de Mexico Agreement. The Carta de Mexico Agreement pledged mutual support, but it was far from a partnership and definitely did not subjugate one to the other. Fidel often disagreed with the tactics of the DR, and Echeverria believed that a slow guerrilla campaign would never be successful. 
In a 2007 interview, Echeverria's sister said the following about her brother and the Carta de Mexico. My brother knew Castro was a disreputable loser that couldn't even get elected to minor student government offices. When he returned from Mexico, I asked him, What have you done, my brother? He replied that he had made deals with God, and now he had made a deal with the devil, but that I shouldn't worry because when the student revolutionary movement triumphed, it would be the time to bring Fidel Castro down from the hills with gunfire. Now, it should be noted that this interview took place 50 years after the events, and well after the surviving members of the Echeverria family had been exiled from Castro's Cuba, which means some of that quote could have been spoken with bitter hindsight, but there is evidence of the enmity between Castro's 26th of July movement and Echeverria's DR from contemporary sources. While Castro's guerrilla army had sat aboard the Grama, the students of the University of Havana were having their school closed, and it would remain that way until the revolution had concluded. I have not been able to get a straight answer to the circumstances surrounding the closure of the university. The university had been granted autonomous powers after the events of the 1930s in order to ensure that it would always remain independent from the Cuban government. The ruling council of the university closed the school in November of 1956. The decision to close the school either happened because the council thought it would be safer for the students in the wake of the escalating protests that had been brought about by a minority of students' militant resistance to the government, or, and more likely, it was forced to close. The question, though, is who forced the school to close? I found a source that claimed Batista's government forced this school to close as a form of censorship of the students and faculty who were so vehemently against the government. However, in the book Cuba 1952-1959, The True Story of Castro's Rise to Power by Manuel Marquez Sterling, a professor emeritus at Plymouth State University, it states that it was the revolutionary students of the FEU and the DR that forced the governing council to close the school as a protest against the government. The purpose of this protest was to put pressure on the government by leaving 10 to 12,000 young people in limbo with nothing to do. The protest claimed that no classes should take place under a dictatorial government such as of Batistas. It had the added value in propaganda as most assumed the school closure was the work of Batista. According to Marquez Sterling, Batista's government continued to fund the university and pay the salaries of all the professors no matter their political affiliation. Manuel Marquez Sterling is a Cuban exile whose father was a prominent Cuban politician, opponent of Batista's during the 1950s, and a candidate in the 1958 Cuban presidential election, the last before Castro's takeover. Carlos, Manuel's father, was put under house arrest shortly after Castro's triumph, and soon the family fled to America to escape Castro's Cuba. The book used private letters of his father and his access to the exile community in order to dispel many myths about the Cuban Revolution and the seven-year revolutionary period. It is a useful source for assessing the period, but with all histories written by those actually involved, it must be read with a critical eye. Whichever way it happened, the school was shut down. The closure, however, did not stop student resistance or end the university's role as a staging point for the FEU and the DR. In the months that followed, the DR formulated an audacious plan to assassinate Batista and oust his regime from power. On March 13, 1957, they put that plan into action. The DR's plan was a fairly straightforward one. One group would attack the presidential palace, infiltrate Batista's private offices, and kill the dictator, while the other group would assault the CMQ 24-hour news radio station and force their way into the radio reloge broadcasting booth in order to deliver the message we listened to an excerpt of at the beginning of the episode, 
with the goal of inciting the people of Havana to take to the streets in a joint action that would free the country of tyranny. The plan was very nearly successful. The presidential palace attack saw the group reach the private offices of Batista. Unfortunately for them, the office was empty as Batista had retreated to his private apartment by his private elevator mere minutes before the attack began in order to read a book about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. At the same time, Echeverria led his group into the radio reloge booth and shouted his message to the Cuban people. He delivered the message with an assumption that his colleagues had been successful, but that he would still only be able to hold the booth with a live microphone for three minutes. The message actually ended abruptly when the station was forced off the air due to a loud noise that triggered that station's security system. Echeverria and his group then fled the station back to a cache of weapons at the University of Havana and the safety it assured. En route to the university, Echeverria's car happened upon a police squad car that just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Echeverria charged the police with his gun, an attempt to break through, and continues the university. He was cut down by return fire and died in the street. Two years ago, on March 13, 2017, the Museum of the Revolution in Havana celebrated and commemorated the attack on the presidential palace. Special distinctions were presented to the survivors of the assault, and a special tribute was held for Echeverria. The revolutionary spirit of the students was emphasized, and their legacy was used as a reminder for the new generations to continue the struggle that the revolution represented. While March 13th is not a public holiday in Cuba like National Revolutionary Day on July 26th, Liberation Day on January 1st, or Victory Day on January 2nd, it is still an important day on the calendar. The importance of the event is largely a result of revolutionary propaganda after the war. As evidenced earlier, Echeverria was far from a Castro supporter, and if the attack had been successful, it is likely that Castro would never have come to power. Leicester Coltman had this to say on the subject in his book, The Real Fidel Castro. Castro's constant fear, right up to the moment he took power, was that Batista might be replaced, for example following an assassination or military coup, by someone who would offer a new face, possibly a face more acceptable to the public but not a fundamental change in the system. This would obstruct and delay the real revolution which Castro wanted. I read an interesting post on alternatehistory.com, which is a forum for alternate history that discussed how Cuban history, and world history for that matter, would have changed if this attack had been successful. Echeverria was a charismatic youth leader who wanted to see change, but likely not the change we saw at the hands of Castro. In Fidel, A Critical Portrait, Tad Solch wrote this about the presidential palace attack. Had the attack succeeded, it would have left Fidel Castro and his mountains as a suddenly irrelevant factor in the revolutionary equation. As for Fidel's reaction to the presidential palace assault, he outright denounced the attack. He called it a useless spilling of blood. The life of the dictator does not matter. I am against terrorism. I condemn these procedures. Nothing is solved by them. The attack had left over 40 dead, including Echeverria, 30 of his followers, 5 police guards, and one unlucky American tourist in Cuba on holiday from New Jersey. It had also left the capital in a police state that saw acting Orthodox party leader Palayo Cuervo Novero murdered by police on suspicion of being involved in the attack. The DR was largely scattered in the aftermath of the failed assault. Havana cells of the 26th of July helped hide members of the DR in their safe houses and, helpfully, took possession of the DR's unused weapons cache. Last time we left Che having just arrived on the Diaz farm on March 10, 1957. 
The presidential palace assault took place just three days later while he awaited the Santiago recruits and new weapons. Che had routinely referred to the DR as El Grupo Terrorista in his private notes and he seems to have shared Fidel's sentiments toward the group's actions. To Che, Fidel's revolution was noble, but the DR's tactics were that of terrorists. I will leave it to you to decide if the rebel army deserved to regard their own actions as superior and better for revolution. Part of the reason I opened today's episode with this long description of Echeverria, the DR, and the failed presidential palace was that chronologically it was the next major event of the war, partly because the DR would regroup in the Escambre Mountains to continue their resistance and become important to Che's story in the future, and partially to highlight the fact that Castro's movement was far from the only resistance Batista faced, and that any number of factors could have led to the failure of the revolution that did not include death in the Sierra Maestra. An interesting parallel between Castro and Batista is that neither man wanted to win the war by assassination. Castro thought that for his revolution to succeed, he needed to beat Batista and forcefully remove his regime from power so that he could fundamentally change Cuban society. A U.S. ambassador proposed assassinating Castro by having an intelligence agent infiltrate Castro's army and killing him. Batista reportedly replied, I couldn't approve that. We're Cubans. Batista believed in a Cuban honor that did not include assassination. Sure, he wanted to destroy Castro and his army, but he would not resort to an attack from the shadows. In La Grilla de Che, Regis de Bray wrote, For a revolutionary... Failure is a springboard. As a source of theory, it is richer than victory. It accumulates experience and knowledge. Debray is a French scholar and philosopher who is perhaps best known as an associate of our man Che Guevara. Part of Guevara's lasting impact on the world is due to the posthumous publications of Che's work and the writings of his family and friends about him after his death. Those works have helped us to understand the man behind the t-shirt to an even deeper degree than we ever did while he was alive. Debray will eventually enter our narrative. I introduce him now as I want to fully introduce Che's philosophy to fighting a guerrilla war. As we know, Che was a dedicated revolutionary and he wanted others to follow in his path. That was a large part of the reason he wrote Guerrilla Warfare and published it in 1961. He wanted to lay the blueprint so that thousands of guerrilla fighters around the world could be successful in their attempts to throw off imperialism and, if Che had his way, they would also embrace Marxism. The philosophy and tactics of Che's form of revolution is one of his most lasting legacies and is important to be cognizant of it as it develops. The Debray quote is a powerful one, but not exactly a groundbreaking or revolutionary concept. I think every single one of my wrestling coaches repeated some phrase about learning more from a defeat than you can a victory. When one loses, it is possible to look at the errors and correct them for the next time. When one wins, there is often not really a lesson in it, just a hope that we are able to replicate it the next time. Yet Debray's quote often inspires awe and is perhaps his most oft-quoted passage in all of his works. In the book The End of Protest, a new playbook for revolution, published in 2016, the author quotes Debray before adding the following. Failure can be liberating. Defeat detaches us from a theory of revolution that is no longer effective, reopening the possibility of true change. Opportunities to test the fundamental principles of activism are as rare as revolutionary movements. The author of that book is Michael White. 
He was the co-creator and co-leader of the Occupy Wall Street movement that formed to protest social and economic inequality in the United States. In 2014, he was named one of the most influential people under 35 years of age by Esquire magazine, and he followed that honor with the publication of his book that partially documented his experience in the failure of the movement. It is telling that 49 years after the death of Che, and 20 years after the original publication of Debray's book, a new era of revolutionaries are still quoting the idea. In my opinion, there are a few reasons for this appearance. One, as mentioned, it is a pretty timeless idea. The quote insisting that failure can be used for future success is not so different than many age-old proverbs. A second reason is Che's status as the quintessential revolutionary and icon for social change. Michael White's book was trying to be a new playbook for revolution, so including a quote that has a very timeless quality to it and also allows for a reference to Che is a good way to gain credit in the revolutionary community. In the paragraph preceding Debray's original quote, La Gorilla de Che outlines the failure of the 1905 Russian Revolution, the Autumn Harvest Uprising in China, and the Makata Barracks attack in Cuba. It then hammers home the idea that these failures were all the springboard for their movement's eventual success. Those are the big events, though. It is also true for the small events. We've already witnessed little failures in the revolution, teaching them to be better revolutionaries. For instance, being too conspicuous in a cane field taught the revolutionaries better habits for the future. Nanakorobi Yaoki is an old Japanese proverb that approximately translates to mean fall seven times and stand up eight. The early revolution was full of falling down, but Che and his compatriots kept getting up. Even when he had horrible asthma and had to traverse long distances, he did not quit. As we further explore Guevara and Debray's philosophies toward guerrilla warfare and revolutions in general, we will find that many of their concepts have been criticized and or fallen out of use but others persist to this day. Perhaps the most important one that does still persist is this one, persistence. I would argue that even more important than persistence and learning from failure, though, is a little bit of luck. It could be argued that it was luck that guided Batista to his private apartment minutes before the presidential palace attack, and bad luck that Echeverria crashed into a police car on his way to safety. Julius Caesar might have referred to this kind of luck as the goddess Fortuna smiling upon him, but do not discount how far a little bit of good fortune can carry someone. That is, of course, just conjecture, and I do know the old adage that luck is just opportunity meeting preparation, so if you disagree, you can certainly tuck my theory away. Back on the Diaz farm, Che was left worried about Fidel and wondering whether or not his recruits were merely delayed or not coming at all. Che had to wait a week with no word. On March 17th, 50 new recruits arrived from Santiago with new weapons in tow. He hid the men in the bush around the farm for a time, made a plan for how to feed them, and then set out to meet Fidel at the designated rendezvous point near Los Altos de Espinosa. As the men left the farm, Che observed that all of them had the same flaws that the grandma men had possessed upon arrival. They had no physical endurance, lacked military discipline, and complained about the food provided. When the party reached the first hill, some could barely make it up the climb. At the top of the hill, Che let the men recuperate the rest of the day. Che ironically remarked in his diary that for these 50 new soldiers, that climb had been the greatest achievement of the revolution so far. 
After eight days of slow and painful hiking, the new rebels were able to reach the rendezvous point and find Fidel thanks to a little help from the Gajeros along the way. Fidel and his group had survived the ambush and were safe upon Che's arrival. The new recruits officially joined the rebel army, and the number of soldiers under Fidel grew from 18 to 70. Che had accomplished his mission and recovered from his asthma attack. It had been a difficult few weeks, but he felt stronger and more ready than ever before, at least until he was again scolded by Fidel. The reunion occurred at the remote hillside community of La Dreca, and the scolding was brought on thanks to the attitude of one of the new recruits. A man named Jorge Sotis had shown arrogance throughout the march and angered many of the other men. Che had stopped the men and gave a speech about the need for discipline, but otherwise did not discipline or single out Sotis. Fidel accused Che of not imposing his authority and told Che he should have taken more command of the troops along the way. With the added men, Fidel reconfigured his general staff and, potentially as punishment, did not include Che as one of the three platoon captains, instead giving the positions to Raul, Juan Almeida, and Jorge Sotis. Che was left with only his official role as general staff doctor. In his diary, Che wrote, Raul tried to argue that I be made political commissar as well, but Fidel was opposed. While it is questionable why Fidel did not name Che one of the captains, it certainly was the right decision to distance Che from the role of political commissar. Che was a known communist, and Batista was attempting to paint Fidel's revolution as a communist plot. It would have given Batista all the ammunition he needed to convince the Cuban people of the plot and, perhaps more importantly, convince the American government of it. Fidel was always very careful to keep his communist hand close to his chest throughout the revolution, as he knew that America and a fair number of his own troops would have turned against him if that truth were revealed. Despite not holding an official command or political position, Che was still invited to Fidel's conclave with his top eight men to determine the next plan of action. Che argued for an aggressive war plan that would have them engage the enemy and give the new men their first test of fire. Fidel and the others were opposed and struck down the plan. It was decided to break the new men in gradually and start by walking through the bush to Mount Turquino, trying to avoid battle. The man Che had a problem with, Jorge Sotis, would remain captain throughout the war and serve with distinction, earning a citation for heroic action. He would grow disillusioned after the rebellion was won and join Manuel Artim's movement to recover the revolution. Sotis would leave Cuba for Miami, where he would eventually die at the age of 28 after being electrocuted while working on a boat generator when his drill came in contact with electric wiring and delivered the fatal shock. The day after the conclave, the rebels received a message from Frank Paz with an alarming report. The report indicated Crescencio Perez had made a deal with Major Joaquin Casillas to betray Fidel's position to Batista's army at a time when the rebels were all in one place and could be destroyed in a single attack. Crescencio was away at the time the report was received. He was off on a recruiting mission and had recently claimed to have found 140 armed peasants willing to fight, but when Che saw Crescencio on his march from the Diaz farm, Crescencio only had four men with him, and none were new recruits. Combined with Crescencio's objection to Fidel's recent order to burn sugarcane, and it was enough to convince Che that the report had substance. Just like that, the debates about strategy were over, and the troops packed up to begin their trek to the hopeful safety of Turquino. It is unknown whether or not Paz's report about Crescencio's potential betrayal was accurate. It is possible he had struck a deal, but changed his mind. He never made such an arrangement, and the report was inaccurate. 
made a disingenuous deal in order to get out of a tough situation, never had the opportunity to betray the rebels, or something entirely different. Whichever way it happened, Crescencio's betrayal never materialized, and he remained a member in good standing throughout the duration of the revolution. Also, while we are on that subject, back in episode 1.13, I mentioned that Crescencio would not survive the revolution. I'm afraid this is inaccurate as Crescencio lived until 1986. It appears that I mixed up the fact that his son dies toward the end of the revolution. The remainder of the information provided about Crescencio in that episode is accurate. I sincerely apologize for that mix-up, but luckily it was only a small one and did not materially impact the narrative. In any event, the evacuation of La Dreca was not a smooth affair, as the newly minted 70-man army left the camp and climbed their first hill one of the new recruits Che had brought fainted from exhaustion. The exhausted recruit was an American runaway from the United States naval base at Guantanamo Bay in his late teens. The descent of that hill was no easier, as two in the advance squad were lost followed by the entire 2nd platoon. Before the day was done, Sotis's platoon and the rear guard were lost as well. Fidel was said to have thrown a terrible tantrum when he learned of the lost platoons. However, by the end of the day, all had reached the agreed-upon house, and it was decided to rest the following day. The rebel army spent the rest of the day eating yucca and plantains from a farmer's field. It should be noted that this army that could not even climb up and down a hill was the same army Che had suggested needed a trial by fire. He had argued for an aggressive campaign with virtual greenhorns. Fidel had seen the wisdom of breaking them in slowly and using the time away from combat to hopefully build his reserves of food, arms, ammunition, and to expand his peasant network. Remember this difference of opinion on the best path forward for when Che is in charge of his own revolution after Cuba and mark the difference in success. Che described their next day as another pathetic ascent. The hill they climbed this time was Los Altos de Espinosa. It was the hill where the rebels had been ambushed due to the information provided by the traitor Eutimio Guerra. The ambush had resulted in the first casualty of the war after the El Gria de Pio ambush after the Grandma's landing. A solemn attitude came over those that had survived it, and a brief ceremony was held at the grave of Julio Zanon Acosta. Julio had been an illiterate black gajero who Che had considered his first pupil. Che had begun teaching him the alphabet, and the man had attacked the task of becoming literate with a tenacity that Che admired. In his official publication after the war, Che characterized Julio as a kind of martyr to the cause, a noble peasant who made up the heart and soul of the revolution. He was held up as the archetype for all peasants to strive to be alike after the war. As Che walked away from the grave of his first student, he found the blanket he had lost during the ambush. He placed a hand on it and vowed to never lose a piece of equipment in such a manner ever again. The days that followed were largely the same. Days of rest followed by days of struggling up hills as the new recruits earned the calluses and experience that can only be gained hiking through unforgiving terrain. A man named Paulino was assigned to Che's general staff with his main duty being to carry the heavy load of medicine. The strain of the load had made Che's asthma flare again and this hike was no time for the army's doctor to fall behind. Fidel used the slow pace to meet the peasants of the Sierra Maestra. He would ask them for any food they could spare, but sadly the peasants had very little. However, the peasants were often sympathetic, and Fidel regularly secured promises for the peasants to reserve portions of their future harvest for the rebel army. The growth of the army to 70 men was very good for the future course of the war, but in these early days it was a liability. 
When the army was less than 20 men, it was easy to show up at a peasant's house and ask to join for dinner. With 70, the poor peasants could no longer offer such a service. As a result, good meals became very hard to come by and their regular diet became the simple foods of the region. Plantains, yucca, and malanga. Malanga is a starchy purple-colored tuber and a staple of Cuba's peasant population. The result of such limited diet meant rumbling stomachs on walks and days of hunger. Fidel had a notorious appetite and loved a good meal. After his ascent to power and the institution of the United States trade embargo, Fidel will use his ambassador in Canada as a means to bypass the embargo in order to attain his favorite treat, Howard Johnson's ice cream. Fidel was just as serious about his meat and the lack of access to good meals put him in a terrible mood. More than one of the rebels were the victims of a hangry outburst from Fidel. Their limited resources prompted the army to resort to desperate means that some might categorize as no better than banditry. One group of men were dispatched to plunder a general store for any food and equipment they could find. It also became common practice to raid a farmer's field and eat their yucca and plantains. When the army approached near to the end of a suspected chivato, a second group was sent to scare him into silence and confiscate one of his cows. The group returned with an impression that the man was not actually a chivato, and while they had not been able to secure a cow, they did bring back a horse. Che noted of the encounter. He wasn't paid for the horse, but he was promised he would be if he behaved himself. Sounds more like theft and extortion and possibly banditry to me, but hey, all is fair in love and war, right? The Gajeros were excited to have a good working animal on the horse, yet to the rebels the most important burden for this beast of burden to handle was to fill their bellies. The horse was ordered killed and cooked. The horse meat was handed out in the evening meal, but the peasants initially refused to eat it in protest. The leftovers were made into jerky, a lengthy process that prompted Fidel to delay his plans to move camp. The salted tajajo was more important than a day of marching. Fidel realized that he was asking a lot from the Sierra Maestra's peasants while providing them only with a vague hope that things may get better for them someday. The feeling of hope might have been plenty for them to offer his small group a one-off meal. That feeling was likely not enough to inspire loyalty in the face of government troops, provide a sustained portion of future harvest for a growing army, or constitute the violence Fidel had brought to their region. Fidel needed something more concrete than the abstract notion of a brighter future for Cuba. He needed something to show the peasants he really did care. Victories and good press would help boost his national and international prestige. Inside the Sierra Maestra, he needed something more. As it turned out, the something more he needed had been with him from the start, in the form of Dr. Che Guevara. You will recall that in earlier episodes I mentioned Che's desire to turn his medical skills into a tool of revolution by helping to heal the poor and disadvantaged. He had dreamt of being a revolutionary doctor in rural Guatemala before that revolution was snuffed. He got the chance to live that dream in the Sierra Maestra when the rebels began establishing open-air medical consultorios. In these medical consultations, he treated countless with similar clinical cases such as prematurely aged and toothless women, children with distended bellies, parasitism, rickets, general vitamin deficiency. In Che's words, these were the stains of the Sierra Maestra. He called the work monotonous as he did not have the medicine or resources to properly treat the ailments of the peasants, and yet these consultations were of the utmost importance in establishing a bond between peasant and rebel. Che described the experience in the following way. 
There, during those consultations, we began to feel in our flesh and blood the need for a definitive change in the life of the people. The idea of agrarian reform became clear, and the oneness with the people ceased being theory and was converted into a fundamental part of our being. The medical consultations allowed the inhabitants of the Sierra Maestras to see that the rebels cared and allowed the rebels to see just how bad the lives of the inhabitants were. It gave both sides a reason to fight and believe in one another. It was the perfect relationship-building exercise. It will not fix every issue as the rebels will still experience betrayals from the peasants and the rebels will still take the peasants for granted. Yet it marked an important turning point in a relationship that would prove to be essential to the continued success of the Cuban Revolution. Okay, that is where we will leave Che this time. He has finally realized his dream of becoming a revolutionary doctor. Next time, we will continue with the life and times of Che Guevara, Revolutionary Doctor. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so that you do not miss it. The show is hosted and available on Acast or any other podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podcast Republic, Podcast Attic, iHeartRadio, and many others. Until next time, cheers.